Hey everyone, I'm Christina, and this is the Broke Girl Society podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Today's guest is Christina Dennis. She is a life coach that specializes in helping us overcome codependency. Now, if you're not familiar with codependency, which I was not before I stepped into recovery and met my therapist, and um, this is something Tara works with me on too, it is so fascinating to learn about how codependency and addiction really kind of play a role together. Um, You know, I have to be honest, I didn't know anything about codependency. I didn't really know anything about recovery, but I certainly didn't know anything about codependency. I had a completely misconception of what codependency was. I thought codependent when somebody said that to me, I'm like, I'm an extremely independent person. Like that's, how little I knew about it. Um, But when you really, really learn about codependency, it's, it's very, very like eye-opening kind of situation. People pleasing is something I have done my whole life. Um, I think that stems from just childhood issues. Um, And I am a fixer. I try and fix problems. Um, I try and put everybody else's needs above my own you know, which creates depletion, you know, all these things are all codependent behaviors. And so, you know, when we really start to understand why we do these things, it kind of helps us get to the root of the problem. And it can really help us take recovery into a whole nother level. And Christina is here to share her own personal journey of recovery from alcohol and codependency. It was a really great conversation, and I hope you learn a lot from it. I will list links to the books that are mentioned in this podcast along with her website so that you can get in touch with her and have a chat with her. It's She's really, really like I said, really fabulous. So let me give my shout out to Gamban. If you are somebody who is struggling with online gambling, go to Gamban.com, download that software, give yourself you know, give yourself that buffer. Um, it will really help start your recovery. So, all right, let's roll on to this episode with Christina. Yeah. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening in. We're here with Christina Dennis, who is a recovery coach that focuses on codependency. Hi, Christina. Hey, thank you for having me. I'm very excited to have our conversation. Oh, me too. I've been looking forward to this because um, a lot of people that listen to the podcast know that Tara, my friend Tara from Ambitious Addicts, and I do uh, a step episode a month. And she works it from a codependency um, aspect. And I work it from my compulsive gambling aspect. And it's great because she is the mutual connector between us. You were on one of her episodes last year. And so I encourage everybody to check that episode out because it was absolutely wonderful. I just can't remember how she titled it, but um, Christina Dennis is definitely in the title. So um, (laughs) I encourage everyone to check that out, but also let's focus on you and your story and how codependency became such a passion for you to, to help people with. Yes, absolutely. Well, you know, I had a traumatic childhood. Um, we were bizarre and kind of fantastical in some ways. I was born overseas. Uh, the two caregivers that I had, a mom and a dad figure, 
really didn't care for me. I mean, it was obvious even to outside people. There was a lot of trauma that had happened to them. And as we know, with intergenerational trauma, that gets passed along. And uh, my father figure passed when I was 13. And his wife, my mother figure, was a mentally ill person. Um, You know, she suffered from maybe borderline personality, maybe bipolar, but she was abusive verbally, physically, sexually. Um, They did well. So there was a lot of ways to cover up that abuse. You know, financially, it was also tied up into some religious abuse. And it all kind of came crashing down when I was 14 and he passed. Uh, My mother's mental illness increased because there wasn't another adult in the home. And at 16, I finally found out why it was so hyper-focused on me. Um, I was told by a brother uh, that my mother was not actually my mother. She was my grandmother. So I was a big secret. Uh, My older sister in the family was actually my biological mother. And everyone that I was connected to were not in the family world that I thought they would be, right? My brothers and sisters turned out to be my aunts and uncles. There was a father figure out there that I didn't know. And so to to say that I needed help pretty quickly or that I needed to address my mental capacity, my mental health is an understatement. And I share that because most of us who show up in addiction have a trauma have several traumas. And I definitely at the time, even though this phrase wasn't necessarily thrown around like it is now, you suffer from complex PTSD. I moved out within a year of finding out that news. Graduated high school a little bit earlier. Uh, the, The atmosphere, the environment was so volatile that it was actually a better decision for me to be out on my own at 17 and not in a home environment. So I became very responsible early in life, Um, very responsible. And I got the message that in order to be lovable, I needed to be a performer. I think a lot of us have this message in this world, especially in this country where we focus on achievement. And I had some serious talents. You know, I was a chameleon. I was able to fit into spaces. I was able to be who I thought other people needed me to be to kind of create some security for myself. You fast forward that to the age of 21, where I find alcohol. Now, I was already in a relationship with a man who was 24 years older than me, playing this part for him. Uh, he had a successful restaurateur. There was all kinds of alcohol around. And when I, I still remember, which is why I knew that I drank alcoholically quickly when I first got introduced to recovery, that first drink, you know, I was in this state, California, down at Del Coronado on a research trip. And I, I remember how that first, you know, trigger warning for alcoholics, Cadillac margarita tasted. I remember the feeling. And I am grateful to say that I found it at the time because I didn't have healthy adults around me um, and I didn't have any way to deal with the trauma. So alcohol served its purpose for me for a long time. Uh, But within, I would say, about three years of my drinking, I realized that I that it had me and I didn't have it. And so uh, alcoholism was very prevalent in the industry I was in. 
Uh, I had an image to upkeep and very few people called me out on it. You know, it's hard for somebody to get sober when they haven't lost anything yet. So I have to say, I'm really, really grateful for how quickly my drinking took over and went downhill. I am because I, I could have created a lot more physical damage out there and probably wouldn't be alive today. You know, what I found myself was at 27, um, realizing that the way I drank was not normal. I still remember that feeling of, oh my gosh, how do I live in my body? You know, the thing that allows me to stay in my body or allows me to operate in this world is killing me. And I know that hollow feeling, you know, I no longer have any options. And so I believe it was higher power of God's grace that connected me with the right people through an employee assistance program to get to an outpatient treatment center. And I remember a lot of my, my so-called friends, they were my acting out partners, my drinking buddies, you know, tried to encourage me that I wasn't an alcoholic. It scared them that I had this idea. And so but there's something inside of me, some self-preservation grace that made me realize that, yeah, I don't drink like normal people. And that was my first introduction to the 12 steps. That was May 6, 1997. I just celebrated my 25th anniversary of sobriety um, last Friday. And um, it, it's, it, it really is, you know, now I can also say that I had a lot of work with that, but one of the things that I discovered was that without drinking, my connection to a romantic partner took precedence over my life. And I met a male uh, in rehab, the best place to meet your partner, <laughs> right? <laughs> Absolutely. The yes. There's a reason why they say wait a year uh, before you date. And he was um, a, an abuser of substance, illegal substance. He was a drug addict, but he also had a secret. Um, he was addicted to pornography. And because I had been groomed, you know, there had been sexual abuse, I had been groomed, that was my currency. And we connected very quickly. It's a classic codependent relationship where I want to be his drug, I'm going to save him, his needs become become come before mine. And I started within a year trying to control his behavior, which is, of course, one of the the telltale signs of codependency. And uh, once I could see that the sex addiction was a serious problem for him to operate in his life, truly serious problem, like he couldn't control it, in order to save him and save the relationship, uh, he introduced me to a codependent of sex addicts 12-step group. And okay. that was my first introduction to codependency. Okay. And bam, did I know I was where I needed to be. You know, at the time, my focus was to heal him, you know, to fix him, like any other good codependent. And um, he, you know, made a choice that he wasn't interested in recovery. And I had been with him for almost three years in a codependent 12 step group. And I started to see that he was just a line of many. He was a list of many and that my entire life, the system that I believe that made me secure and lovable and worthy was based on codependency, not interdependency. Yeah. 
Okay. Um, that's, you know, I remember the first time I, I heard your story and, and listened to it and I thought, I mean, there was a lot of things that made sense. And the fact that you were so young and so aware of these, these things going in, like you, you knew something wasn't right at such yes. a young age. And here I, here I am starting recovery. I remember, cause I was pretty early in, I'm still early recovery, but I was really early in recovery when I originally heard your story. And I was like, okay, it took me to be 42 to even mm-hmm. realize that my life was um, chaos. And then yes. this is interesting. Whenever I started therapy for my gambling addiction, my therapist said, have you read codependent no more? Um, but is it melody baby? Uh, yes. Thank you. I was drawing a blank there for a sec, but, um, I have the like stack of her books over there. Uh, and I was like, no codependent. I'm not, I don't depend on anybody. Like right. that was my initial reaction was like, I cause she was talking about codependency with my mother. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I, I don't depend on anybody. I don't know what you're talking right. about. Like you are way off. And so mm-hmm. I just kind of left, like, she just kind of left it like, like, okay. She's like, just read the book. And I was like, okay. Yes. And so I ordered the book, read the book. And within the first 10 minutes of reading the book, I was like, oh, this is not what I thought it was about. And I am probably one of the most codependent people on the planet. God bless you. (laughs) Me too. I was like, I have been a people pleaser my entire Mm -hmm. life. And I see where, where my own trauma in my own childhood. Um, And, uh, you know, my mom didn't, my mom was a single mom of three kids. And um, I have another sister, but she didn't come into our life until later on. That's a whole nother story. But um, my mom was very depressed while yes. I was growing up. And I had a mentally ill sister who took mm-hmm. any time that, I mean, she has uh, just took any extra time my mom had. My mom had to work two jobs at one point to keep her in a special school. So it was like, I was doing things at eight, nine years old, like cleaning the house and, right. and doing things that, you know, kids don't do at that age. They don't cook full meals and have to worry about their laundry. And then there yeah. were times where my house was, was very, very dirty and mm-hmm. very chaotic. And, um, it's interesting because when I was started to focus on, on my own traumas, uh, for my own recovery, I just focused on my gambling traumas because I feel like I have sure. PTSD from my gambling traumas. Yeah. Um, I haven't even really started to focus on my childhood traumas. And that's, that's kind of what I'm working in in this next phase of my recovery is just, you know, trying to process those without putting any, any blame on my mom, because my mom mm-hmm. did the best she could. I know that. Of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, even though I can't compare, compare my story to your story, like we can't do that. It's still, it still kind of blows my mind a little bit that you were so self-aware of it. Um, well, aware of not necessarily codependency, but knowing that, that something wasn't right. Right. Well, the pain was so great. And it was probably the first time I had felt that rejection that I couldn't do anything about. And I'm so glad that you you said the things that you said, because a lot of times I work with a lot of people in recovery. Not everybody has to have formal recovery plan. You know, there are people who come to me, um, but the alcoholic or the addict can believe that the person they're in a relationship with is the codependent. But truly, everyone within the relationship is a codependent. 
and alcoholics. Like I know that my drinking was what I did to try to heal my codependency. It was actually the codependency that was in, was where all my little addictions and acting out were in that big boat of codependency. Now it took me some time. I, I have to tell you, but you know, a couple of things that I shared within my story. First, I was incredibly grateful for the, the stark um, PTSD. Like there was no denying that I had to get help from other people. And so I'm grateful for that because I think sometimes people, it's a little bit of a struggle for people to get there whenever they do have a parent that was loving. It's hard to kind of pinpoint it, like you just said, without blaming. And um, one of my, I would say the graduate degree of recovery process is adult children of alcoholics. And so I'll boldly say this, and I really believe this, not every codependent is an alcoholic, but I have yet to meet an addict or alcoholic who isn't codependent. Mm. I can, <laughs> so, I could completely agree with that. Yes. And adult children of alcoholics and dysfunctional families, they are changing the name if they haven't already done so, is one of the most beautiful, intense programs of being able to take a full inventory on your trauma, a blameless inventory and figure out where did you get that belief system from? Because sometimes, you know, as children, we get belief systems long before we're ever aware of them. And so, you know, combing through, first of all, recognizing the nervous system, knowing when we're in trauma, knowing when we're triggered, you know, and then being able to look through the history in the most objective way you can allows us to go in and root out that belief that is false. And, you know, and so uh, people who come to me sometimes will say, well, I didn't have a traumatic childhood. And trauma, the definition of trauma is times, you know, when you didn't feel safe. So even if a parent is working two jobs and doing everything that they can do, you can recognize that at eight years old, when you should have been feeling peaceful, when you should have been working on secure attachment, when you should have really been focused on yourself, you were having to do all these adult things. Codependents are, are uh, not born, you know, they're trained. And generally, they're trained by other codependents, right, who never question the family system. And, uh, you know, I shared, I know on Terrace, that it doesn't end just when we decide, oh, I'm going to stop being codependent, because it is so insidious in all of our belief systems. We have to have help to get awareness. We have to come up with a plan. We have to treat our nervous systems so that we can start practicing boundaries. I mean, it's, it is a full, um, it's a full deep dive into who we are, why we are made like this, what is, you know, determining our decisions. And it takes time. I have been uh, recovering from my codependency for over 20 years now because I got into it within two years of being sober. And I'll tell you, it's the deepest work I've ever done. Oh, most definitely. I think when you're re in recovery anyway, from any type of addiction, um, you know, you have to become so self-aware of every mm -hmm. emotion, every, just like you said, your, your nervous system, your, the, the feelings of like, you know, I, I would get these, um, hot flashes. And I would mm -hmm. tell myself, well, maybe, you know, I'm 43. So sure. I was getting them probably, 
I don't know, maybe started, started maybe three, four years ago. I'd get like, I just call the flush face, you know, Mm -hmm. the really hot, hot face. And it's interesting when you say, I don't think I've really associated that with maybe my nervous system reacting Mm -hmm. or maybe my body reacting to very stressful situations because it would happen in very stressful situations of course, and, or maybe just after Mm -hmm. and I'd be like, Ooh, I don't, I don't know what's going on. I, I guess I'm early menopause, you know? Um, Uh cause it was, it was kind of right around 40 plus I I've had a hysterectomy. So I don't know. I think I was just blaming it on like everything else, Hormones, yeah. (laughs) but, um, it's interesting because when you say that I'm thinking, how has my body really reacted? But my body has reacted very hard to the stress of my addiction. Um, and I'm not shy about this. I have ulcerative colitis Mm -hmm. and that is something that developed right, right. When my addiction was really kind of taking control. And Mm -hmm. that's something I've battled with for several years now. And it's, it's just a very nervous stomach issue that I have. And, um, I, I really relate to that as far as, you know, how my body has reacted. Well, and, and our bodies are so good. So as a child, and I, you know, another book that um, I've done a couple of deep dives in that's, you know, painful, it's called The Body Keeps the Score. And it shows, you know, from a medical research standpoint, what trauma actually does to us. And so what we know now, and I mean, we weren't studying this when not 53 years ago when I was born, right? We weren't right. studying this. Our parents weren't aware of this. You know, my grandparents had lived through the depression and they had their own trauma and there was no time or room to be aware of this. So I get it. But now we have actual physical proof that shows us. So when we have a traumatic event, you know, in our childhood, um, it's we can't we don't have the capacity at that time to have the feeling. Right. So we disassociate. Mm. Right. We disassociate. And you know, at eight years old, but that trauma freezes at that age. So you're eight years old when a trauma happens. And then years later, when you've run out of options to continue to disassociate, and you must start to connect, something will happen that will remind that feeling, oh my gosh, this is what happened when I was eight years old. And you will, I will react as if I'm an eight-year-old. Oh, interesting. So I don't have the capacity at that point to parent myself until I start recognizing, oh, I'm having a reaction. I'm having a feeling. And so a lot of times we will hold ourselves to, uh, to like, well, I'm 45 years old. Why is this? Why am I reacting this way? And we will shame ourselves for having something that was frozen in us, you know, that needs to come out. And that's why, you know, codependency recovery is still just a bridge to the, the work of going in and healing childhood trauma and discovering who you are. I'm not sure if we should, I should probably define codependency because it's a, it's a squishy thing. It's not black and white and it's really difficult. Um, You know, I think that we should often say that we have abstinence when it comes to alcohol And we have sobriety when it comes to codependency, because sobriety is about behaviors and and all kinds of things. And so what a codependent means is that we have no sense of self and we prefer to everyone else's needs ahead of our own. But the reason why we're doing that is because 
if they're okay, then they will make sure I'm okay. Now, it isn't, you know, and that's why it shows up as people pleasing. It also shows up as, as overachievement. It shows up as someone who's trying to control all of the people in their lives by being responsible for everything. And then we really don't have a sense of self. And the little bit of self that we have, we don't believe that it's worth enough unless we do all of these actions. And so people in our lives get bitter. They get resentful. They don't want to be manipulated. They want to be accepted as they are. You know, uh, we feel overlooked and victimized because we've been doing all of these things. I call it the invisible contract. And I entered into an invisible contract with friends, employers, uh, boyfriends, husbands. I did it unconsciously for a long time until I started to realize I'm making that person responsible for my happiness. They need to act a certain way. They need to be grateful enough. They need to put me on a pedestal in order for me to be worthy. And what I have to do, and, and this is a, a really tender story with me and my son who is autistic, is I have to release other people from that responsibility and take it as myself. It is me, my job to make me happy. It is me as a parent, as an employee, as a coach. It is my job to take care of my body and my nervous system, to cultivate joy, to be as honest as I can be in a relationship, to choose the safe people that I can share my dirty diapers with, you know, the parts of me that don't feel that are still unhealed. It is my job. But as a codependent, you know, which we get it honestly, we believe that it's our performance will guarantee that this person will see us as valuable. Yeah. Um, I like checked off the list. I mean, yeah. that was so me, even, even when I was deep into my gambling addiction and I felt like I was, was achieving the, the minimal, you know, yeah. like I felt like I wasn't doing enough. Like I felt like I wasn't growing as a person. I wasn't doing all these things for me. I was still performing at a level for others, you know, cause yes. I, I say that it's kind of like, you know, I live two lives. I live this life that wasn't addicted in this life that was very addicted. I mean, they, they existed, you know, together, Simultaneously, but yeah. yes. And it's like, but if you looked at the, the version of me, people didn't know was a gambling addict. It was like, I was just going above and beyond to do these things, but yet I felt like I wasn't doing enough or I felt like I wasn't. Yes. Um, and especially what's interesting now that I'm in recovery and working the steps, you know, with Tara through the codependency and, and things like that is like, even at work, um, the disappointments, you know, like my boss is, gets disappointed in something at work. Mm -hmm. It's night and day from what it was pre-recovery of any kind versus sure. how it is today, because I'm like, that's something that was out, out of my control. But before, if it was something that, even if it was out of my control, something that happened out of my control, it was like, oh my goodness, like it's painful. It is. It's very, I took it personally. And I, yes. and I think my employers in the past have like soaked that up Yes, and been like, Oh, <laughs> you know what I mean? They're and now it's just like, when something happens, I understand that it's something that's out of my control. And it's like, I kind of get a little bit of an attitude about it, you know, which probably isn't mm -hmm. healthy, but like when something happened last week at work and my boss was just like, you know, this, and I'm like, mm, well, that's not really anything I can control. 
you know, and, and I said it kind of in that, that manner of like, I'm sorry, but that's not something that I could have controlled. And he was just kind of looking at me and I'm like, you know, it's just kind of this, just so that you understand that, you know, that's not something that was, was in my control. And it's kind of been, it's kind of been an interesting dynamic learning that and expressing that. And not, and I, I think it was me like verbally expressing to myself, even though he was standing right there, that that's not something that I could have controlled. You know, it was like, I was saying it to myself internally, but I saying it out loud, if that makes right. any sense. Yeah. No, speak to yourself. You should talk yeah. to yourself all the time. I tell people that all the time, be, have an agency of thought, really choosing your thoughts carefully, which is something that I wish we would start teaching younger children, you know, that you can choose your thoughts, um, is, is the, the awareness is the first thing. And it's painful for a codependent to watch other people be disappointed, but you did exactly right. When you said, is there anything that I could have done for this? And, you know, when I was raging my codependent behaviors, I really believed that I was supposed to be in control of everything. Yeah, I really believed it. And, and, you know, I had a mentally ill mother, uh, grandmother, who when things didn't go right for her, she would point to me and say, it's because you exist that things aren't going right, you know, because I had to take care of you. I never wanted you. And prior to knowing the story behind it, I would be completely confused. But I got the message as a child oh, everything that bad happens is my fault. So therefore I can fix this by being perfect. Mm, yeah. And, and that's I think, why they call perfection shame. Mm, okay. Yeah. I think, and I, I've, I spoke with, you know, I speak with a lot of people coming into recovery for, for their gambling. A lot of women is mm-hmm. mainly who I talk to. And it's interesting because a lot of women that I talk to talk about that, you know, they have, I don't have children. So this isn't something Mm -hmm. that I've really experienced as far as like children go, you know, being that, Mm -hmm. that mom that shuffles all the kids to all the soccer practices, games, brings, brings the snacks, bring, you know, that really shows up and like gets their kid involved in like every single Mm -hmm. thing. So this is kind of leading up to my next, my next thing about, about depletion, Mm -hmm. you know, and how this is something that I see a lot in just not necessarily moms who are gamblers, but wives, um, you know, employees, uh, you know, we have a tendency to give ourselves so much to everybody around us, you know, to the point where we get into this depletion state. And this was a really big thing for me to understand because I was an escape gambler, right? Mm -hmm. So I would give everything I had to everybody else. And I was in a really, really toxic relationship Mm -hmm. in, I was, um, I know now that he was definitely off the, the charts, um, narcissistic personality disorder. Like gotcha. I, it was in me as your codependent people sure. pleasing, like it just sucked my soul to be with mm. somebody like that. And I didn't understand it. And so it's like you, like he was also my employer. So only Mm. I was in a relationship and he was my employer. So it was like a double whammy. And then I had this gambling addiction and then I had family life all around me. So to say I was depleted is probably 
a huge understatement for me. So I'm sitting in front of these machines, trigger warning, and these machines aren't asking anything of me, right? Yep. Except for just to feed them the simplest mm-hmm. thing. Just, just give me something and I'll keep playing for you. Yes. That, that is just the simplest way that I can explain why my gambling really, really took hold. What do you say for, for the women listening who this is part of their story, this depletion, and, and that probably mm-hmm. ties into boundaries and all kinds of like complex things to try and, you know, it really does. It really, it really does. does. You know, I'm glad you brought up, you brought up a lot. First of all, <laughs> um, first of all, women, you know, whether you have children or not, it's determined that women have an invisible workload. Uh, you know, at least 17 to 25 hours more work than our partner within our household, um, interestingly enough. So we have the patriarchy, which is a system, not a gender. You know, I love men, I work with men, but it's pretty much known that women will fill in the blanks at work, uh, within their organizations, within volunteer, and we will take it on because it's celebrated, right? So whether you're an addict or not, you know, everybody gets a gold star for being selfless and a selfless mother is one of the greatest compliments you can have. And I'll tell you with a special needs child who's nonverbal, that was something that I thought was my job. And so recognizing that that is not our job and you do that with, with support, with peer support, with understanding. It's like we all have to start saying, this is not okay. This is not okay for us to run ourselves into the ground because that, that is what we do. And if we are lovable because of what we produce, it's like, well, then how, do you, how are you worthy? And so what I do with every client is I insist on we start focusing on the nervous system and we have a spiritual contract where we check in with somebody every day and we say, we tell that person, what are you going to do for yourself physically today? What are you going to do for yourself emotionally? And emotionally means fun. It means not producing. It means looking at a magazine, having a cup of coffee, listening to a playlist. And what are we going to do for ourselves spiritually? And at least once a day, we've started to orient our vision and our focus on ourselves. And you cannot imagine, I mean, I bet you can, how difficult that is for women to do at first. Yeah. It is. Yeah. But in order to become self-secure, we actually have to start knowing who we are. You know, a lot of times I will sit with somebody and after we've done history, which is the first, you know, first thing that they get to be seen and heard probably the first time in their life without shame attached to it. We start talking about where are you going to put your time? Like, it's important, you know, what your favorite color is. It's important that you schedule pleasure every day. You know, it's important that if once you get into recovery, that you don't lose sight of the parts of you that are fun, the parts of you that you tucked away as a child because of trauma and decided I'm not going to focus on that because it's too painful when it doesn't happen. This is my childhood. It's too painful for me to have ideas and hopes because they're not going to happen anyway. So I'm going to pretend that part of me doesn't exist. So what I say to people is, all boundaries start with self-love and self-love is an action. So you have to take actions, you know, in the 12 step program, 
um, that I belong to, I would hear you've got to act your way into right thinking. You can't think your way into right action. So in order for your little person, the inner child, the nervous system to start to trust you again, because you finally recognized, I've finally recognized that I, I ran myself into the ground in order for it to start to trust me and want to come out. I've got to start giving it rest. My first year of sobriety, I slept and slept and slept. Because my body was overrun, the exhaustion was there at 27. I had done enough drinking and damage to myself that I just had to shut down. And so um, having a group of people around you that can reflect back to you that you're worthy just because you got up and showed up is essential because that's what we needed as children. We needed to know we were valuable just because we existed. It's not yeah. self-centeredness. Right. It isn't. Right. We can't be useful to other people long-term if we don't take care of ourselves. Yeah. That was one of the hardest things for me to practice stepping into recovery was how important self-care is. It is. Yeah. Self-awareness, self-curiosity, self-inquiry. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it's such a, it's such a, a foreign concept. If you've been raised in a home that has trauma attached to it, you, you've been told, we've been socialized that to think about ourselves is selfish. But I, I believe that to think about myself is my job. And therefore, when I show up in relationship with other people, I'm not expecting them to define me. Mm, I like that. I like then that. I can give freely for fun and for free. I can do loving things because I have enough love already, you know, for myself. That person doesn't have to love me enough that I feel okay because I feel okay now. And that has taken, you know, years. I mean, the nice thing about starting to do this is that we get immediate relief. But as we continue to take contrary action, contrary thought, we can replace these old insidious hidden beliefs that we are not worthy unless we perform. Yeah. And I think this is, I think there's going to be a lot of people that really, really myself included that relate to that of of setting these, these bars that we have to meet. And, and, you know, I see a lot of times too, when you step into recovery and you're trying to replace what it was you were doing, um, a lot of, a lot of people struggle with that. They struggle with like, what do I do now? You know? Right. And I think it's hard for them to, to not do anything. It's one of the hardest things. <laughs> They're like, what, what am I supposed to do? And it's like, when you yeah. tell them to rest, it, it gets associated with laziness or, yes, or those types of, so it's like all these different ideas of what we're supposed to do. And, you know, in early recovery, it was really hard for me to set with myself. And Tara used to tell me all the time, set with your feelings, set with your Mm -hmm. feelings. And I'm like, I don't want to, I don't want to. Um, and so I, I got real creative and real productive, but it's still thinking, well, it helped me at the time, right. It helped me kind of move out of, you know, kind of sort through those early days of trying not to gamble. And it was very helpful, but I wasn't sleeping really. I was throwing myself into recovery into, um, different things. But what's interesting as I've really kind of started to apply like 
the self-care, the self-curiosity has been my biggest thing lately. Like just being curious about Mm -hmm. the next chapter. And because I live so long in this box that I, the self-imposed box, and I've been talking Mm -hmm. a lot about it, about breaking open the box and seeing what's next. Um, I've noticed myself needing a lot more rest. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm sleeping in, in the mornings, I'm going to bed at a decent hour and I'm kind of setting my phone down and, and which has been really, really hard for me too, because I just, I, I enjoy interacting, you know, with people in recovery and, and helping any way I can, but I've really noticed that, that I've really just started recognizing my body's needs and sleep was definitely something I was just neglecting. And I'm, I'm not sure why, but it's been interesting. Well, you know, that hyper arousal that comes from video game, game, gambling is very difficult. You know, I think it's important when we talk about addiction to understand neuroscience and what addiction really does, you know, alcohol, uh, there is a certain amount of dopamine that comes with that. And dopamine is the pleasure molecule. I mean, it's the one The dopamine means we want more, right? And our brain is designed to want more. It's how we function. But if we are running on dopamine, which is what we're doing as addicts, you know, we're running on dopamine, running on dopamine, and we don't have the skills to increase our serotonin and our oxytocin and our endorphins, it takes practice. I always tell people, this is like driving a clutch. You know, sometimes you need a little gas. Sometimes you need to push the clutch in. And it's not a perfect science. When you define your sobriety and codependency, there is a workshop that was introduced to me many years ago that I think is fabulous. And it's, it's called the circles workshop. And what you do is you put your acting out behaviors in the red circle. You know, my acting out behaviors as a codependent would be controlling, manipulating, raging, you know, not resting. It would be all these things that I defined as breaking my sobriety. And then the circle outside of that is yellow circle behaviors, which is those behaviors that we get to that place. And mine always includes not taking time for myself, not scheduling appropriately, you know, and I can see it clearly. Oh, I'm setting myself up to have, you know, a um, acting out series. You know, I'm starting to focus on others more than I focus on myself. I'm starting to say yes when I really want to say no. I'm not being honest in my relationships because I'm not telling somebody when they hurt my feelings or they've asked for too much. You know, I'm doing old type behaviors. And so those really helped me see, okay, I set myself up for that a little bit. Not that I'm 100% responsible for the other person, but I, I am putting myself in that position. And then the green circle behaviors are the ones that are about self love. They're about action, you know, that produces, you know, that we are indicating to ourselves that we're worthy, that we belong, that we belong to ourselves first. And so with every week, I encourage people, what are you going to do for yourself spiritually, emotionally, and physically today so that you stay in the green circle as much as possible? Now, codependents are really good at taking 100% responsibility for people's actions around us. I personally believe I did that because it was a way of me feeling like I had some control over what was happening to me as a child. If I'm responsible for your anger, that means I can fix it. And sometimes we're just, I mean, a lot of times we're not. And so it's really good to have somebody 
to dialogue with, you know, to share about it. The, the book that you mentioned is a great book. Pia Melody is also, I call them the Melodies. She also has a wonderful book called Facing Codependency and Facing Love Addiction. And it's very helpful to um, start reading the literature and start checking it out. And I, I will tell everybody, there's one, one technique that I can teach everyone in just two minutes, and it has to do with your scheduling. So what you have to do is train yourself that when you have a request that comes with your way, like, will you be able to do this? Even if you know 100% of the time that you will do it because you want to, I want everybody to say, let me check my schedule and I'll get back to you. And start making that the way that you communicate with people so that you have the time to assess, is this my people pleasing or do I really want to do it? And so starting today, I mean, I, I remember telling somebody, even if your toddler says, I want juice and you know, you're going to get the juice, say, I'll get back to you in just a minute and give yourself that little pause so that you can reparent yourself and show up. Oh, that is that, that advice speaks to my soul because that's mm -hmm. something, you know, is, and I I'm relating it to my gambling years. Like I couldn't schedule anything. I couldn't commit to anything. I couldn't, you know, like. But that a lot had a lot to do with I could gamble, might be able mm -hmm. to gamble. And, you know, sure. so it had a lot to do with like very, very unhealthy um, behavior there. But now in recovery, like I have an update in my calendar behind me, but I've got a calendar there. I've got my handheld and I've got my phone. All three of them correlate. Yes. And this is something that has been so empowering to me is to be able to kind of really look at my schedule and say, yes. but I still am leaning towards that. I need to pause that and say, let me check my calendar because I yes. still, I know my calendar, but I still have some people pleasing tendencies that are showing up, especially as I'm, I'm trying to get this podcast and do some other things in the, in the community, you know? So it's like easy to jump on something really quickly and be like, yes, I'll do it. But then yeah. I know for March, I had a lot of requests to do a lot of different things because it was, uh, you know, it's kind of the, the, the month that they, they do gambling awareness. Uh, okay. recovery stuff. So I was like jumping on things left and right. Well, I work a full-time job. You know, wow. I, I manage my home. I, you know, do my podcast and another podcast and I, my recovery comes, you know, before all that. And it's just, you know, and I was doing all this stuff and, and I was like, okay, I wore myself out. I did. Mm -hmm. By the end of the month, my, my, my voice was I, very, very scratchy and raw. Mm -hmm. I was very, very tired. And uh, yeah. So just that's something I really should practice for myself, I guess, is the whole point of that spill. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and, and also being gentle with yourself, even when we have mishaps, you know, I, I might not always know the solution to how I'm feeling, um, or is it just that I need to feel it and it will pass? I don't always know, but I have learned in my 25 years, the solution never includes shame ever. So when I hear that voice that says, oh, you did it again, you showed up when you were tired and look at what you're doing. And I start hearing that voice when I can recognize it because of the work that I've done. And I can say, nope, I know that's not going to help me. All right. I hear you, but it's not helpful. And I, I truly like I literally say I have a dear friend who's a neuroscientist. I literally say, Christy, because that gets my brain's attention. Christy that doesn't help. 
for you to speak to yourself that way. You got here because you love people and you want to be loved. And this is, you know, for many years, this was the way I did it. And now I'm learning a new way. And so I, I really encourage people, if you're hearing this podcast and you're like, I, you know, doing what I do, taking 100% responsibility for how people perceive you and interpret your language, I want you to stop and be gentle with yourself. Yeah, that is, that is excellent advice. Um, I think in, in all aspects, even, even in our recovery, when we like for people who are, are new in recovery and they, they take these missteps and, and things like that, it's all about finding grace with yourself mm-hmm. and, and kind of brushing yourself off and, and getting, getting right back up and trying yeah. again and fighting perfectionism, fighting it, understanding perfectionism. It, I mean, they've, I've been reading, uh, Brene Brown's Atlas of the Heart book, and it's Amazing. a deep dive into 112 emotions. And in that book, she shares about perfectionism is one step away from shame. And what they have discovered is those of us who are perfectionists actually show up in a way that encourages people to reject us. I mean, it is a useless technique, you know, but in a highly curated world, it's very easy for our inner child and if we had parents that kind of reinforced it, that it mattered what you look like, not necessarily what you're feeling like, we fall into that. So it's really good to, to have that agency of thought and be like, wait a minute, is this perfectionism sneaking in? Or do I really, you know, have a desire to be the best? Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's always kind of the, the struggle in my thought is, you know, I'm always struggling to just be comfortable in my own skin, just be mm-hmm. comfortable with with how I'm showing up, as long as I know that I'm showing up in the best possible version of myself. And so that's, that's still kind of a constant struggle. It's like these media things I've done lately. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm really opening myself up to that. And then I find myself, you know, I've, I've talked about this a little bit, but when they get things wrong in my story, Mm -hmm. I will tear myself apart. And I'm just like, or like, I didn't say that. And I would get so hung up on just these little tiny things that they got wrong or something like that, or, you know, that they report, they wrote it from their own Mm -hmm. um, perspective. And I, I kind of skip over the fact that, Hey, I I showed up to, to, to share my story, to help others. And that's really what I need to focus on. Um, And then I just get, I just, I'm struggling with like, not being hung up on the smaller stuff, you know, I guess because I spent so many years lying and hiding myself that when I'm finally showing up and trying to really share my, the most authentic version of myself, they get it wrong. You know, and it's just like, it's really hard to kind of accept that, Hey, you showed up for it. You can't control that. That's that that's what they did with it. And you're, you're not responsible for the way people hear what you said. Very, very true. Very, very true. That, that is what they, that is part of their deal. Um, and, you know, part of, like I said before, uh, having, holding on to the illusion that we are responsible for that kind of makes us feel like we're more in control. It doesn't yeah. feel as arbitrary, but that is the inner child, you know, trying to, to make sure that she's safe. Yeah. And, and so we, we practice, like I tell people it's going to, there's another thing that I think really is important to say is that 
um, there's this illusion for everybody to believe that they know how to rest. Like, well, that's dumb. I should just be able to do it. You know, why am I uncomfortable with laying down? Look at what, I, why am I such a weirdo? And I tell people, of course you're uncomfortable with laying down. Like you have to practice it. You have to practice, you have to have evidence that it's okay to take a nap on Saturday without bad things happening. <laughs> yeah, I'm like that. shaking yeah, my head because- have- yeah, naps are new to me, and but there's something yeah. I I like look forward to every weekend now. I'm like, before I go into my Sunday my Sunday meetings, I host a Sunday meeting on um, in the Broke Girl Society, and usually most of the time I'm coming with like nap hair, and I'm like, oh, I yeah. just had the best nap, guys, you know. And so it's it's definitely something I've had to to really work myself through. Like it's okay yes. if I sleep 30 minutes or two hours. It's okay. And it's okay if you have, it's okay for everyone to have those feelings like, oh, oh, maybe I'm not enough. Mm-hmm. Because, because once we, be, we become aware of that feeling, then we can parent ourselves at that time and say, no, I love people who show up with naps, nap hair. I love that. And we start really, you know, showing everybody grace and, and being okay with grace. And we have that ethic of love where we really are okay with whoever shows up, you know, because they're okay with it. And if we're not okay, then we take care of ourselves and move away from it. Mm, Yeah. I, I love, I love the thought of that. Um, Especially, you know, and, and really the way I've been doing these meetings since uh, January and just the group of women like that show up every week, um, you know, we're starting to laugh when we come mm-hmm. in and we laugh about, and it, it's just really nice because this, this addiction is so heavy yes. and the emotions of this addiction is so heavy. And sometimes, you know, we'll start off with laughter and we'll end with crying. If we get somebody mm-hmm. that's, that's new and, and really struggling and we all just cry together with them. And, and the next week they come back and, and they're a little bit lighter. And it's yes. just, it's that, you know, when you talk about community and having that connection with others, to show up for you and, you know, let you know that, that what you're going through, I understand has been Mm -hmm. the most amazing thing in my recovery. Just, just the women I've come across, even if I've talked to them one time, Mm -hmm. they, I still feel, you know, their soul and, and it's just something that's just going to stay with me. And, and I look at all the harm and everything my, this addiction caused myself and I caused others. Um, but I still don't think I would take it back. I still don't think I would go back to the day where it took hold and say, Hey, this is going to ruin your life. I think I would just let it continue the way that it would have gone because I just, I can't imagine being any, any different than I am in this moment. And I think that's been one of the most amazing things in, in learning about codependency in my own personal journey has, has played a huge role in that. Self-acceptance, you know, in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, there's a famous story that says acceptance is the answer to all of our problems. And, you know, I struggle with acceptance. I, everyone does with my son's diagnosis. I really struggled with it, but once I, I got to a place where he needed me to accept him exactly as, as he is, you know, that he needed to know that he was enough exactly as he showed up. That gave me the courage to start believing that I was enough. And he was brought to me to heal, to heal our family, mm-hmm. that it wasn't another set of circumstances you know, that, 
you know, I needed to challenge and overcome. It was truly the way it was supposed to be. And that's hard when we first show up, you know, because of the pain. But there is, to me, there is an expiration date on grief. Eventually, every time we're willing to feel it, we're laughing or crying or healing. We don't ever have to feel that particular day of grief again. You know, we can put it behind the line and say, okay, I was willing to do it. And the fear of feelings, my fear of feeling, having feelings was much more damaging than the actual feelings. Once I finally decided to sit in my body and learn how to be with myself. Yeah. Well, um, thank you so much for coming on and for sharing your story and empowering those who are listening. Um, I just can't tell you how much I appreciate you taking the time. And so I just want to kind of go like head towards closing this. And if you just want to tell the listeners how they can get a hold of you, kind of what they can expect working with you, and then we'll just kind of go out from there. Sure. Well, I, um, I am my, all my social media is Christina Dennis. Uh, K. It's a K. And so you can easily find me there. There's a lot of information on my website. There's a quick freebie uh, about what what are the things that we need to focus on when we want to start recovering from codependency. When I work with clients, I take a limited amount um, because we really do for three months do a real deep dive and we go through historical pain and trauma in a very safe environment that's tailored to each person. And we moved through that, um, myself and the client, to a place where they can start visualizing a life and start getting what they want, which is what the goodies are all about. When you're in recovery, you keep coming back because every time we see somebody overcome it, it's like, yes. I mean, I I heard that when you were sharing about your group, every time. I also... um, coach with another recovery coach uh, through a program called Breakthrough. And that's through Recovered Life, which is a community of, of all, all of us people, you know, that have uh, had addiction touch our lives. And so either way, they can find me. Um, I'm really happy to get on a call with somebody just to see if we're the right match. There are a lot of options out there, thank goodness, for people. But um, yeah, it's the true joy of my life to be able to do this work with people. It's very gentle, but deep work. Yeah, I can, I can feel it across your social media. I can feel it just chatting with you that this is a true passion for you and that um, the way your energy comes across is very, very gentle and compassionate. Oh, thank and, you. Yeah. And so I'm, again, so thankful for you coming on and joining us. And I will put all your information to in the show notes so that people can click and and find you. And, and And again, we will want to have you on recovered life. So, Oh, um, I'd I'd be honored. Yeah. We definitely want to talk about uh, gambling, you know, addiction and find the people that are brave enough to talk about it. We talked about that word brave, but uh, lots of the world. needs. Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. Especially, especially women you know, talking mm-hmm. about gambling addiction and, and, you know, I say the numbers don't, don't really show. Who, of course they don't. Who's struggling. And so um, I'm always happy to share my story. So, Love all it. right. Well, thank you. Thanks thank you. everybody. <laughs>